welcome back to another episode of In the Labyrinth of Death. I'm Finn. And I'm Marina. This week, we're talking about blizzards. I think I have kind of a skewed view of blizzards just a little bit because, like I've said before, I really romanticize the idea of being like out in the snow and on the ice by myself. I read this book like alone, it was like out in Antarctica and blizzards and I love like walking with my dogs in the snow alone where there's no other humans. So I think doing this episode was really interesting for me because I think I had really minimized how bad winter weather can be because we're not very far up north on the East Coast. And so actually seeing what it can do and what can happen in a true blizzard, I think kind of opened up my eyes because I had kind of like a milder view in my brain of what happens. Even though you see like those headlines like, in Buffalo, 44 people died, and that's horrific, but in my head, I hadn't I hadn't really understood what it meant to be in a blizzard. Before we get into it, remember, we're not experts at all of any kind. We just really don't want to die, and we like researching and talking about it. Please listen to our full disclaimer at the end of the episode, and don't sue us, we're just two regular people. My opening story today happened only a few years ago. It was a cold but clear day on December 11th, 2016, when a young couple from Niskayuna, New York, set out for what should have been a three-hour hike. Maddie Popolizio was 19 and her boyfriend, Blake Alois, was 20. They were headed over 5,000 feet up to the summit of Algonquin Peak, which is actually the second highest mountain in New York State. Now, there was already heavy snow on the mountain, so the couple brought snowshoes along with water and snacks, which included pizza, fried chicken, and granola bars. They made it up to the summit just fine, took a few quick photos, and then a thick, impenetrable fog suddenly consumed the mountain. Blake later said it was like a white abyss, and then it started snowing and became extremely cold and windy. Maggie said it was so intense I could not see my hand in front of my face, and if I wasn't latching onto Blake, I would have completely lost him. Unable to see the trail back down the mountain, Maddie and Blake linked arms to stay close together and headed towards what they thought was a clearing that they could use to reorient themselves. But when they stepped towards that clearing, their feet met only open air, and they tumbled a hundred feet down the side of the mountain. They came to a stop on top of snow so deep, they realized that they were actually surrounded by the tops of broken trees. They tried to climb back up the mountain to find the path again, but even with their snowshoes, they couldn't find any perches on the snow, and they just kept falling straight through. At one point, Maddie stood up and fell literally straight through the snow, buried up to her head, and Blake had to pull her back out. And so they realized they were stuck there in the loose, deep snow on top of the trees. They built a snow wall to protect themselves from the worst of the wind, but it was still incredibly cold and snowing intensely. Now, when she fell down the mountain initially, Maddie actually got a bunch of like snow packed in her shoes and in her pants, and so pretty soon she actually lost all feeling in her legs so Blake dumped out the contents of his backpack and zipped her legs into the backpack. And that actually worked to warm her up, but they lost the majority of their supplies, including their food and their fire starter, and it just disappeared in like the super loose snow. Their gloves were wet, so they stripped them off and tried to keep their hands warm under their shirts, but then they ended up losing their gloves in the snow as well. So they basically had no food, very little water, and now they have no gloves. The first night there... Maddie struggled to keep Blake awake, fearing he may not wake up if he did fall asleep. That night, the couple agreed that, quote, neither one of us could die because we couldn't leave the other one alone. And after that, death wasn't an option for us. It just wasn't, end quote. Their water bottles had frozen completely solid, so they had to warm them up with their body heat to drink anything at all. They still had some small snacks like granola bars and homemade Christmas cookies that Blake's mom had made. 
And so they made it through the first night, screaming into the darkness in the hope that rescuers would hear them. But rescuers weren't even contacted until 4.30 a.m., at which point it was deemed too early to begin looking for the couple. Sixteen hours later, at 8.30 p.m., they began looking for them on the mountain. Maddie and Blake became extremely dehydrated as time went on. As darkness fell during the second night, Maddie hallucinated rescuers calling back to her from the void. A park ranger found them at 11 a.m. the next morning. The park ranger gave them fresh, dry clothes and blankets, and soon more park rangers arrived with tea and hot cocoa while they waited for the rescue helicopter. The couple was airlifted to the hospital, where they were treated for hypothermia and frostbite. From what I could tell, they ended up keeping all their fingers and toes, which is super impressive. It was also thought at the time that Maddie may have shattered her teeth from the violent chattering, but I couldn't find any confirmation of that. There's no fucking way that you can crack your teeth like that. So I swear I have memories of reading about people's teeth getting fucked up on Everest, but I just Googled it and I can't find it. However, I did find some dentists talking about cold air causing cracks in your teeth. So apparently when the cold air gets in there and then you grind your teeth, it actually can cause damage to your teeth just being out in like regular cold weather. And as a counterexample to you think it being impossible, I chipped my tooth in my sleep just grinding my teeth. So it's entirely possible, I think. If she was out in like the freezing cold and chattering her teeth all night and maybe grinding her teeth, I think she could have. All right, you did most of the research on what blizzards are. Can you tell us what that is? Yes, I want to go into the science of blizzards in three distinct sections. Number one being how blizzards are defined. Number two being how blizzards actually form from a meteorological perspective. And finally, number three, where blizzards occur throughout the world. So what is the definition of a blizzard? Blizzards have a very straightforward set of requirements as defined in the U.S. by the National Weather Service. The way that I think of it is that there are three distinct quantitative dimensions to a blizzard, which are number one, time, number two, wind speed, and number three, visibility. Now, the first one is time. Specifically, this means that the duration of the snowstorm has to be at least three hours. Number two, the wind speed has to be at least 35 miles per hour or 56 kilometers per hour. And number three, visibility has to be lower than one quarter mile or 400 meters due to airborne snow. I don't think I ever understood that before, that there actually was like a time duration that it had to be in order for it to count as a blizzard. I thought you could have like a lightning fast blizzard where it's like super fast and intense and then it's gone like 20 minutes later. Yeah, there's absolutely no such thing as a quick blizzard. They have to have a long time for snow to both fall and be blown around. So is there a term for like a really fast, really intense snowstorm that just blows through, obliterates, and then it's just gone? To my knowledge, no. I think it's just categorized by default as a severe snowstorm if it doesn't hit the three-hour requirement. Now, notably, there is no temperature or snow quantity requirement to be considered a blizzard which I think a lot of people will be shocked by. A blizzard can happen right at the freezing point of water, which is zero Celsius, or it can happen at negative 80 Celsius. All right, let me make sure I get this straight. So the three requirements are, I can't see because there's snow being thrown around. So there's low visibility, really strong winds, and it's gone on for three hours. So is it technically possible then that there is a really bad windstorm, a long windstorm in the winter, with very light new snowfall that just happens to be blowing snow that's already on the ground, creating visibility issues. I was actually going to get into this a little bit later, but now is as good a time as any. 
There's actually a special subset of blizzards called ground blizzards in which there's no actual snowfall or other precipitation that's involved. These ground blizzards can occur when there's already loose snow that's already hit the ground and is then swept up by the strong winds. The three same requirements for a normal blizzard, that being time, wind speed, and visibility, must also be present in order for this phenomenon to be considered a ground blizzard. Now getting back to what I said before about there not being any actual temperature or snow quantity requirement to be considered a blizzard, this means that it can also technically happen with just 2 inches of snow with the right wind conditions, but it might be difficult to hit the visibility requirement with that little snow being blown around. I guess the snow would have to be like really almost dry and powdery as opposed to like a wet kind of slushy snow because that wouldn't kick up very well. In my head, I'm now shifting my idea of a blizzard from being like a precipitous downfall of snow necessarily, like a bad snowstorm basically in my head in terms of like the amount of snow that's falling to something that's more like a sandstorm just with snow instead of sand. That's a really good way to put it. I think a lot of people are hung up on the actual quantity of snow that's being blown around or falling from the sky. You really have to think about the visibility component of it because if you have really wet, sticky, slushy snow, it's not going to fly around as easily. You might actually have a really bad snowstorm with really good visibility and it would never be considered a blizzard under the U.S. definition of it. So now that we've got a pretty good idea of what the definition of a blizzard is, let's get into how a blizzard actually forms from a meteorological standpoint. The science of blizzards can be either simple or complicated depending on how macro or micro you're looking at the weather system. At the macro level, a blizzard usually forms when a body of moist air meets and rises above very cold air. Typically, how this happens is in one of two relatively equivalent ways. Number one is that cold air from the poles is pushed towards the equator where it sinks below the locally moist air. Or number two, moist air from the equator is pushed northwards or southwards above a mass of cold air. I'm definitely not a meteorologist, so I'm not going to get into detail about aspects like jet streams or low and high pressure systems because it's just a little bit too granular for this kind of discussion. But suffice it to say that there are three coinciding phenomena that have to happen in order to lead to the formation of a blizzard. Number one is that the body of cold air has to be very, very cold, usually below freezing. Now remember that air has to be cold both at the cloud level and at the ground level in order for snow to form and stay frozen once it's hit the ground. Number two is that there's a high moisture content of either the cold or warm air, or sometimes even both. This should make sense because water vapor is moisture and that's what condenses to form snow. This moisture requirement makes sense because even if you have super, super cold air hitting super warm air, if there isn't enough ammo, so to speak, you're not going to get enough raw precipitation in order to create those whiteout conditions I mentioned earlier. Number three is what we already mentioned, which is that there has to be some kind of front that's formed by the opposing bodies of cold and warm air in order to create storm clouds. Cold, moist air in isolation doesn't create clouds that can cause precipitation like rain or snow. There has to be a literal collision of bodies of air of different temperatures in order to cause a phase change, in this case being condensation at the cloud level. So in summary, blizzards need three basic things. Very, very cold air, very, very moist air, as well as a collision of two different bodies of air of two different temperatures. Is that different from a regular snowstorm or just that it needs to have created more snow in order to have the visibility requirements? 
No, there's no special way that a blizzard forms. It's the exact same phenomenon as a snowstorm, but it just has those three special criteria, like I mentioned, time, wind speed, and visibility. Let's talk about where blizzards actually happen throughout the world. Blizzards can happen anywhere in the world where there's the potential for snow. For example, in Johannesburg, South Africa, where it almost never snows, there happened to be a blizzard all the way back in 2007. Blizzards can occur on literally every continent in the world, but based on my research, it seems like they happen mostly in Antarctica because fucking duh, as well as North America. Are they really that common in North America compared to other parts of the world? I feel like when I hear these like mountaineering stories, it's like we're in the Alps and there was a blizzard or, you know, we're in we're on Everest and there is a blizzard. Like there's I feel like there's tons of blizzards like Siberia. I did most of my research by looking at the list of documented blizzards on Wikipedia and most of those entries come from North America as well as the UK. There's very little entries that happen in Africa and Asia and even Europe. The rest of mainland Europe is not mentioned very much. So I think it's more indicative of the fact that meteorology as a science has just been more researched and more written about in English-speaking countries. So there may actually be a lot more blizzards on those other continents that just go underreported. I definitely agree that it makes sense that in like the Swiss Alps, for example, there should be a lot of blizzards, but I think people just don't measure it there as they do for American or Antarctican blizzards. Or maybe they're so commonplace that it's not worth mentioning in some areas, like on Everest, I'm sure there's like blizzards all the fucking time. And two, maybe just the Wikipedia article that you're looking at is English focused and that I bet there's a whole bunch in the rest of the world and it's just that you're on the English speaking one. That is a really good point because I know that across the world, all of these different countries have their own equivalent of the National Weather Service. Canada, for example, has the Department of Environment and Climate Change, and they have almost the same identical requirements for a blizzard that we do. It's just that the duration is increased from three hours to four hours, and the wind speed is somehow lowered from 35 miles an hour to 25 miles an hour, or 40 kilometers per hour. So what is considered a blizzard in different places may be changed just because there's so fucking many of them, or there's not too many of them. I don't know how things are over in Europe or in Asia, but over here in North America, blizzards and heavy snowstorms are very, very normal, and they're expected during the wintertime. Especially in the New England and Midwest regions, I think it's relatively unusual to not be hit by a major snowstorm or blizzard whenever the winter is in full force. With that being said, let's get into how blizzards actually kill you. So blizzards can kill you either directly or indirectly. The direct way a blizzard's going to kill you is probably going to be hypothermia. So hypothermia is when your internal body temperature is 95 degrees or less. We'll probably do a whole episode on hypothermia later, but we'll just talk about the symptoms for now. When you have hypothermia, you're going to go through extreme shivering, confusion, you'll get lack of motor skills, especially in your hands, you'll get kind of like fumbly, you'll get kind of drowsy, and you're going to start slurring your speech. Indirectly, if you're like out in your car, since there's very low visibility during a blizzard, you could get in a really bad car accident. And you also have to think about a lack of access to like medication and medical help if you're trapped at home during a blizzard. And one thing I found that was interesting is that most animals that die during blizzards die due to dehydration. And I'm, I'm guessing a lot of those are going to be like livestock that are left outside during a blizzard. What should you do to prep for a blizzard? The first thing you should do is pay attention to the different levels of winter storm warnings before a blizzard actually happens. The lowest level is called a winter weather advisory, and that's going to tell you things about snow, freezing rain, or ice. 
It's going to be inconvenient, but you still need to exercise caution or you could get into a bad situation. The next level above a winter weather advisory is called a winter storm watch. Now this is issued about 12 to 48 hours before the storm actually hits. This is when things start to get really bad. There's a possibility that there could be blizzard conditions such as heavy snow, heavy freezing rain, or heavy sleet. The worst level is called the winter storm warning. This is issued 12 to 24 hours before the storm hits. And this warning means that it's pretty imminently going to be a bad storm and it's going to be very hazardous. Again, it's blizzard conditions. Heavy snow, heavy freezing rain, heavy sleet. But this time, it's extremely likely that it's going to happen soon. You should plan ahead of time so that you don't have to risk going out in the middle of the storm. So check your gear, check your supplies in your house, and be prepared. Yeah, I know shit happens, but if you can, try not to be one of those people who's plugging up the grocery store, buying stuff like milk, eggs, and bread, because hopefully you already have that stuff at your house. You should always try to keep three days of food at home, not just for blizzards, but just in general. We usually prefer to have one to two weeks of non-perishables, and you probably have more at home than you realize. If you hear a storm is coming up, just take inventory and shop sooner rather than later. If the storm doesn't hit, you're still going to eat the food eventually. So you want to check your food, especially food that you don't have to cook in case you run out of power. Check your hand sanitizer, soap, toilet paper, pet food, all that stuff. Also make sure you'll have enough medications for you and your pets to get through the storm. Assume that it's going to take longer than expected for the roads to be cleared. Obviously, make sure you're triple checking both you and your pet's prescription medications. Those are most important. But also double check that you've got the over-the-counter stuff too. They expire sooner than you realize, and you should not take them expired because it can really fuck you up. So double check stuff like ibuprofen, NyQuil, DayQuil, Motrin, Tylenol for the kids, all that stuff. And since people don't talk about it as much, I want to go over what we have in stock for our dogs in the house. I always have Benadryl in case they have some kind of an allergic reaction. I have something called Indazorb tablets, which is fantastic for helping with diarrhea. One of our dogs has like a history of stomach issues, and this has saved us a few times. I would hate to have like a dog that is having a serious diarrhea issue in the middle of a blizzard and we can't leave. I also have hydrogen peroxide, and this is in case your pet eats something stupid and you have to make them vomit. So if you're snowed in and you can't get to the vet, but your dog has eaten something just awful, call Animal Poison Control and see what you can do on your end without a vet. If it's going to be beneficial, depending on what they've eaten, they'll walk you through how to use hydrogen peroxide to make your pet vomit. There's special ratios in terms of like how much hydrogen peroxide you, you administer to the animal based on how much they weigh. So you should look that up, call Animal Poison Control if you're stuck at home. There are also phone-based vets that you can call for advice, like a telemedicine thing, but for vets instead of people. We also in our house have veterinary handbooks that you can just buy kind of like guides for owners. We have one in our home medical kit just in case. And always double check that you have some water. You should always have extra water on hand at home, like always, but particularly for blizzards and winter storms because you could lose power and then have your pipes freeze. In order to prevent this, if you're at risk, like if you know you've lost your power or your basement's really cold or something, you can actually cover your pipes with insulation or even newspaper, and you want to make sure you've got your faucets dripping. A couple other important things you should check. Double check that all of the battery backups in your smoke detectors and your carbon monoxide detectors are working. Also, you should just have extra batteries on hand in the first place for all of your flashlights and other electronic devices. If you have enough flashlights, place them strategically around the house so you're never too far away from one in case you suddenly lose power in the night. We actually have these things that plug directly into our outlets. I think they're either made by Energizer or by like the Red Cross, weirdly. But they're basically flashlights that stay plugged into the walls constantly. 
but they don't turn on unless we lose power. So they're just sitting there charging until they hit max capacity, then they just sit there. But if we lose power suddenly, they'll actually illuminate like they were a nightlight, and then they can be unplugged from the wall and used like a flashlight. If you've got one, check your generator as well, and make sure to get some gas ahead of time in case there's a rush. You also want to fill up the gas tank in your car as well. Number one, because you might get stranded or take an insanely long time to get home. And number two, because a full tank of gas can actually help prevent your fuel lines from freezing inside your car. Yeah, I'm actually a little bit weird about having supplies in the car and in the house and stuff. I've got like spreadsheets and stuff to make sure we've got everything we need. But in both of our cars, I have these kind of collapsible trunk organizers with a lot of the stuff in there and some other stuff for other reasons. Like, oh, that makes me sound like a crazy person. <laughs> I mean, in case of other non-Blizzard emergencies, but specifically for blizzards, you should have jumper cables, flares, or that like reflective triangle that people sometimes put on the road, ice scrapers, a broom to push the snow off of your car, cell phone charger, cat litter, some people use sand just to get traction underneath the wheels if you get stuck, some non-perishable food if you get stuck in your car, always have water, first aid kit, Warm blankets or sleeping bags. We have both like a wool blanket and also like those emergency foil blankets. Changes of clothes for everybody also, especially like gloves and hats. Now, let's say you're actually caught outside, like literally outdoors in the middle of a blizzard. If you're near buildings, try to get inside of a building. There was a story recently, I think this was out of one of like the, the Buffalo blizzard stories that just happened. There was a guy who was stuck outside. He kept asking people for help and no one would help him. And kind of as he kept going, trying to find shelter, he kept finding other stranded people. And so he ended up at a school with like a whole horde of other stranded people. And he busted into the school and basically saved everybody's lives that he happened to stumble upon. So my takeaway from that is just do whatever you can to stay alive and deal with the consequences after. And I say this as a true, like to my core legalist, but I don't think that anybody would blame that guy or press charges for breaking into the school to keep himself and a bunch of other people alive in the middle of like a fucking blizzard. But as a caveat, this is not legal advice for the record. I just personally would do what that guy did. What do you do if you're trapped outdoors? See if you can build a shelter of some kind, even if it's just a lean-to or a snow cave. What the fuck is a snow cave? Well, I'll tell you. A snow cave is another good shelter that you can build. I didn't list another one. Basically, a snow cave is going to be something that you build either into a snowdrift or into a pile of snow that you have kind of mounded up and then carved out. It's not going to be a super quick solution to build a snow cave, but it could take like even three to four hours. But I'll walk you guys through one that's called a Quincy. So basically, you make a big mound of snow, like really big, and you pack it down hard. You hit it with shovels, you stomp it, whatever you've got, just to compact it as much as you possibly can. This snow mound that you make is going to need to be at least five feet high and seven to ten feet in circumference. So, like, imagine a person laying down and then add a few feet extra for the walls. And the, the width and the size depends on how many people you're with and how tall they are. And a lot of people, when they're building these, imagine you've built, like, your little snow mountain that you're going to compact down. They'll also put a tunnel in the front, like a tube of snow coming out that's going to be just big enough for you to slide through on your belly, still having, like, walls built around it. So once you've built this like compacted structure of snow, you have to let it sit for an hour. You cannot immediately start digging it out. And there's like a technical term for this is called sintering, where like not like sintering like C-E-N-T, but S-I-N-T, sintering, where you're just going to let the snow kind of settle down, 
and I don't know if it's going to prevent cracks or what the real reason is, but you build your mound, compact it, then don't fucking touch it for an hour. Then you can come back after that and start kind of slowly, gently digging it out so you don't crack it. How is this different from an igloo? An igloo is built by, imagine building bricks of snow, right? Where you've got like a mold of some kind or you're cutting the snow into the form of like a brick, which you then like Roman style kind of like build into a dome. So that's an igloo. This is the opposite where you're building one giant solid dome and then digging it out, like hollowing out the thing that you've built. And it's going to take hours and hours to dig this out. And as you're digging, make sure that you're leaving your walls one to two feet thick, including in the tunnel. So remember, when you're measuring in the beginning, include the thickness of the walls in the mound that you're building. And once you're done, you're going to actually want to poke ventilation holes in the top of it. And the size of the ventilation holes can vary. Some places said they needed to be six inches, but I saw other places saying that it can vary depending on the temperature. So like if it's 30 degrees Fahrenheit, you can have a hole at the top that's four inches wide. But if it's below zero, that you could have a hole that's less than an inch wide because it's going to lose too much heat. You just need to have some kind of ventilation like that. Otherwise, you're going to build up carbon dioxide inside of the air that you're breathing, and that could be fatal. So once you've hollowed out like the tunnel and then the inside of it, you want to make sure the inside surface is as smooth as possible. I've seen people say they kind of like use even their gloves to make it like shiny smooth because anything that's uneven or jagged is going to collect condensation and start to drip on you inside of your shelter. Now, two last tips also. Do not use a fire inside of your Quincy. You probably don't have enough ventilation and you'll also die of carbon monoxide poisoning. Just as a side note, we watched alone like several seasons of it. And there's always somebody every season who builds a shelter, puts a fire in the shelter. There's not adequate ventilation or their chimney gets fucked up. And then it either burns down or they start getting woozy from carbon monoxide poisoning or their eyes are burning from the smoke and the soot. And these people are like, actual like outdoorsy professional people so if you're like me and you're not like a professional person like that you will definitely die if you try to put a fire inside of your snow shelter speaking of danger it can also be dangerous just digging out the shelter in the first place so if there's if you're not alone you're like you and somebody else don't have both of you working inside the shelter at once leave someone outside the shelter with a shovel so in case you collapse it in on yourself like you haven't made the walls thick enough They can dig you back out and you won't like be crushed to death inside of your snow shelter. And my last point on Quincy's is when you're digging or any other time you're outdoors in the cold, don't let yourself sweat. Take frequent breaks, wear layers that can be stripped off because if you start sweating, you're at a drastically increased risk of hypothermia because your body heat's just going to wick right off of you like it would if you were in the summer and you were sweating and your body was trying to like thermoregulate. And when you're building a fire outside of your shelter, You should build it far enough away that it doesn't get the smoke inside of your shelter. So you should build the fire, put stones around it if there are any available, and that should help retain heat and also reflect it back towards you. Fire's got a lot of utility to you in many different ways. Number one, fire can make it easier for other people to spot you, right? So if you're trying to let people know where you are so they can come save you, fire and the smoke that comes along with fire is going to be a really good dead giveaway. Number two, Fire can be used to melt snow or ice for drinking water. A big misconception that people think is that if you're by like a mountaintop and you're skiing or snowing and you have all this frozen water around you, they can just like put snow or ice in your mouth and then it becomes water. It's not efficient to do that because you're going to expend more energy to melt that ice and turn it into water than it's worth drinking. So always use fire if you can to melt that snow before you drink it. 
If you have an actual cooking vessel with you, like a pot or a pan or even a kettle, you can put enough snow in it to cover the bottom and then gradually add more snow handful by handful until you've melted enough to drink. Now, if you're stranded without cooking vessels, I've read that you can actually suspend the snow above the fire, maybe in something that's not heatproof, and let it drip into another bowl or a cup or something. So I was imagining like holding snow in one cup and then above the fire and kind of letting it drip into another cup, but high enough above the fire that like a plastic cup wouldn't melt. Now, if you don't have a fire at all because you don't have any fire starting equipment and you're trapped outdoors and you really need water, if it's daylight out, look for stuff like big rocks that are out in the sun. You might actually be able to drink some ice that's been melted on the outside of it and get just a little bit of hydration. Remember, like Finn said earlier, putting snow directly in your mouth to melt is going to actually dehydrate you more than if you hadn't done it because your body has to expend the energy to heat the frozen water. Another tip for dehydration is to avoid coffee and alcohol. It might make you feel better at the time, but both caffeine and alcohol will dehydrate you and actually make you more susceptible to hypothermia. If you're caught in the car during a blizzard, you need to be super careful, obviously. Whether you're still on the road going home or you become stranded and can't actually move, you're in a bad situation. Over two-thirds of all winter weather deaths occur in cars. If you're driving and you're in motion, slow the fuck down. You might be a good driver, but snow and ice are treacherous and you've got extremely low visibility during a blizzard. Remember, it's 400 meters or a quarter mile that you can't see past. You also need to assume that every single other driver out there, if there are any, is a complete fucking idiot who also can't drive in the snow. If you happen to lose traction and start to slide around the road, take your foot off the gas, gently apply the brakes, and turn the steering wheel in the direction that you want to go. Yeah, and don't reapply gas until you've actually like completely stopped. And one other thing that I saw is if you are actively spinning, you're going to get really disoriented. So don't try to like whip your head around to keep track of where you are because you're going to get really dizzy really fast. And you may not be able to steer in the correct direction that you want to go because it's so dizzying just to keep spinning like that. So if you're actively spinning in a circle, don't move your steering wheel. Just wait until the car slows down because you're not going to be able to do anything at that point anyway if you're like doing like full 360 circles. If you're stranded in a car, as in you're not spinning out, you're not moving anymore, you're stuck in a fucking snowdrift or something, do not leave the car. You're way more likely to be found by rescuers if you're with your car. And to improve your chances of being found, because there could be a bunch of stranded cars out there, tie something bright around your antenna or something up high on the car so that rescuers can actually find you. And the good news is your car is already basically a shelter, so you don't have to build like a fucking Quincy or something. If it's nighttime and you're running the engine, to keep yourself warm, which we'll talk about in just a second, you can also turn on the dome light inside to make yourself visible to rescuers. Just make sure you turn that light off when you turn off the engine, because otherwise it's going to drain your battery, and you may not be able to get your car restarted, especially in the cold. Always remember, if you're freezing to death in your car, you're almost certainly going to die faster outside of your car trying to get help on foot. You can run the car engine every 10 minutes per hour, or five minutes per every half hour. That's okay too. Anything longer than that, and you run the risk of carbon monoxide poisoning. You should also confirm that your tailpipe is unobstructed. If it's not fully open, that carbon monoxide is going to leak back into the cabin where you are. Make sure you crack open a window downwind from the tailpipe. Yeah, remember that. Just 10 minutes per hour, whether you want to split that up or not. Just remember 10 minutes of car running per hour. Now, I read an editorial about people being concerned about 
the future for snowstorms because everyone's moving over to electric vehicles. So I was really curious about that. I found an article on Car and Driver saying that you should actually be fine in an electric vehicle, even if your battery capacity has been diminished by the cold, which it will be. The Car and Driver article determined that a full electric vehicle battery could heat the car at least as long as a gas-powered car could, even in the cold. The article also pointed out that electric vehicles are more likely to be at full charge at any given time, since a lot of people, when they come home from work or whatever, they actually plug their car in every day. So if you're looking at a bunch of cars out on the road, the electric vehicles are more likely to be at full energy capacity versus a gas-powered car, because you would have had to specifically go to the gas station to fill up. If you're trapped inside of your home, do not run your generator or a grill within 20 feet of your house. Like many other things within this episode, it's because you're going to get carbon monoxide poisoning and die. Also make sure that your generator, which is outdoors again and not in your home or garage, is covered completely while there's still precipitation. You also want to wait for the generator to cool completely before refueling it, since you could spill gas and accidentally catch it on fire. You gotta be super careful when you're shoveling snow as well, for obvious reasons like slipping on ice and hitting your head or your hip, but especially if you're over 55, overweight, or have any kind of heart or blood pressure condition. So I always wonder during like a storm where you're trapped at home, can first responders get to you? And the answer is probably they're fucking stuck in the snow the same way every other car out there is. So if they're, they're gonna try to get to you, but I know at least in the Buffalo story, I read a whole bunch where like, they knew that there were people out there that needed help. They were stranded or they were having medical issues in their homes and they could not get to them, at least not like in any kind of like time that we're used to in like a non-emergency situation. So just understand that it's going to take a long time for help to get to you. I think eventually they ended up having to rescue people like on inner tubes, literally where they would like drag them in the snow. So just know that it may be a while before they can get to you. And my other question after I think about like first responders for humans is what if your pets have a medical emergency because there are no ambulances for pets you have to get them to the emergency vet yourself and i think in this kind of a situation in a blizzard you may just be shit out of luck so be extra fucking careful keep an eye on them don't let them eat anything stupid or get hurt because that's i think that's really all you can do short of like loading your dog up onto like a sled and dragging them all the way to an emergency vet in which case you'll probably freeze to death so just be super careful so we're at the part where we always talk about movies and how things are depicted in media. And I had this whole list of movies that I came up with, with like movies that have blizzards in them, because apparently all of the good movies have blizzards. I had like the 1982 The Thing, The Day After Tomorrow, The Shining Snowpiercer, and we were just thinking about it. And we don't actually have enough information in basically any of these movies to know if like these cold weather scenes were actually really blizzards or not, because Unless they specifically say it, which I'm sure they do in like Day After Tomorrow, but unless they specifically say it, we don't even know if in The Shining, if that's a blizzard, because we don't know anything about the visibility or how long it's been that visibility or anything like that. Yeah, a lot of it you can infer that it's going to be something like a snowstorm or just a lot of heavy snowfall in general, but there's no clear indication as to the visibility, for example, how long it's been going on. A lot of times you'll see in these quote unquote blizzards that to do some kind of time skip. So there's never a true indication of how long this blizzard's been going on for. So I think there's no real true portrayal unless they explicitly say this is a blizzard and they kind of hand wave the actual conditions about it. Actually, I think that there is a series that portrays a blizzard really well and I forgot about it until just now. It's called The Head. I think you can watch it on like HBO or something now. But anyway, 
it's basically set in like the South Pole and I think a person's head shows up. I think that's what it's called, the head. But anyway, I I remember specifically it was an enduring long storm and they could not leave because of the high winds and the low visibility and they actually showed what it looked like to be low visibility outside. I enjoyed this series. I thought it was really good and I think now that I know more about blizzards, I think weirdly this one show may have had a better depiction than like most of the other movies that you think about when you think about blizzards and movies a, a big part of that is probably because in order to get a good shot you can't have low visibility right you have to be able to see what the fuck's happening also there was obviously a really real blizzard in the 1996 mount everest disaster they made a movie out of that staring staring starring jake gyllenhaal and a bunch of other really like famous actors which i really enjoyed that movie um, but I don't specifically remember how the blizzard was depicted, so I might have to go rewatch that one. I remember a couple scenes that center specifically on specific character experiences. So for one, Josh Brolin's character, he gets some massive frostbite, and they actually show the real guy at the end of the movie. He's got like at least two of his limbs, if not most of his limbs, amputated. A lot of people, I think they just start going unconscious or they want to go to sleep and then they die because of that and they don't wake up. Blizzards are already bad as it is when you're on the ground level. Blizzards when you're going mountain climbing, especially on the most extreme mountain or one of the most extreme mountains in the world, that is literally a death sentence, which is why the actual season for climbing Everest is so small because blizzards can fuck everything up in a matter of literal minutes. That's also why they have such like advanced weather watching on Everest specifically. That's featured in the movie as well. All right, I think we're about to wrap this up, but I have two last discussion points. One, if you have hypothermia, and again, you're going to feel extreme shivering, you're going to slur your speech, feel drowsy, be confused, you want to get inside of a shelter as quickly as possible and warm your core first, but don't warm up too quickly because you can have weird side effects and that might actually be very dangerous. Now, frostbite, my second point, is going to cause numbness and discoloration of your skin in the affected area. So your skin could turn white or gray or yellow, maybe even like feel waxy or like extremely firm. If you think you have frostbite, do not massage the area to try to warm it up. Just don't do it. The tissue is very, very fragile and you could really destroy it. Instead, you want to try to warm the area up with like lukewarm water or by using your own body heat, like by putting your hand in your armpit. Don't do something like use a heating pad or hot water because again, that's going to damage the already like super fragile tissue. Don't forget that we have a website in thelabyrinthofdeath.com. Check it out. We've got all the episodes listed, all the sources. We've got a link to a bunch of awesome books. We've also got free stickers there at inthelabyrinthofdeath.com slash stickers. You can also reach us on Instagram at inthelabyrinthofdeath, so follow us there and leave us a review wherever you listen. We'd really appreciate it. Tune in next week for yet another episode of In the Labyrinth of Death. In the meantime... Send us your near misses with death to inthelabyrinthofdeath at gmail.com. We'll see y'all next week. This podcast is researched and presented by enthusiasts, not experts, and is for entertainment purposes only. None of the content you have heard is meant to be taken as legal, medical, financial, survival, or any other kind of advice. Please consult with actual professionals. Professionals.